Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 58, Skylab 3, Part 2, Spiders, Stowaways, Six-Packs, and Science. Last time, we met the crew of Skylab 3, the second mission to America's first space station. Alan Bean, Owen Garriott, and Jack Lausma would be following in the footsteps of Skylab 2, leveraging their impressive repair EVAs to raise the bar on how much science a crew can accomplish. After an uneventful ascent, rendezvous was made a little more interesting by a propellant leak in one of the four groups of attitude control thrusters. Less braking power and a translation-rotation coupling is not ideal for delicate orbital operations. The problem was compounded several days after a successful docking when a second set of attitude control thrusters began to leak. The crew put the possibility of an early departure to the back of their minds as they executed a tricky EVA to add more thermal shielding on top of the deteriorating parasol. With the so-called window shade or twin pole thermal shield in place, the most challenging repairs of Skylab were out of the way and the crew was free to focus on the science-oriented mission they had trained for. About 50 days remained in this record-shattering flight, but the crew was already significantly behind schedule. Days of space adaptation sickness, otherwise known as floating slowly and trying not to puke, put a damper on early flight activities. And even when the crew began to feel themselves again, they found that tasks took significantly longer than expected. This was a lesson that seemed to elude NASA for a number of years. Doing something in zero gravity for the first time simply takes longer than it does on the ground, even for people with experience in weightlessness. For a crew that was so determined to make the most of their limited time in space, the struggle could be demoralizing at times. Imagine training for years for a mission only to get started and find yourself barely able to make it across the room. It didn't help when the increasingly sure-footed crew called down to find out just how far back they had fallen. Rather than the 90 or so percent they had expected, they were alarmed to discover that in reality they had only accomplished a little more than half of their objectives. It was time to make some changes. The crew began to systematically divide up the work to ensure that their time was being spent as efficiently as possible. They stopped eating most meals together to ensure that at all times something was getting done. Though they did save their shares of ice cream for delightful-sounding ice cream parties when the whole crew could gather around the wardroom table. Bean noticed that Garriott was particularly adept at operating the Apollo telescope mount, so decided that most of the ATM work would be left to him. It's tough for anyone, but especially astronauts, to admit that there's literally anything they're not the best in the world at, but with the schedule pressure bearing down on them, there was no time for egos. We'll let the crew focus on their backlog for a minute here and take a step back to talk about some of the numerous experiments they're actually working on. One experiment you've almost certainly heard of, even if you weren't sure where, involved two extra passengers on the flight, Arabella and Anita. No, these weren't NASA's first women astronauts, we sadly still have a number of years to wait on that front, but rather two spiders. During their search for experiments to do onboard Skylab, NASA accepted proposals from students in addition to scientists, and a number of student-prompted experiments went on to actually fly. Arabella and Anita found themselves on Skylab thanks to a question from a student who wanted to know if spiders would be able to construct a web in weightlessness. The experiment itself was pretty simple. Each spider was transported in a small cage that contained a damp sponge for hydration. 
They were fed before the flight and could easily go a few weeks without food as long as they had water. When it was time to start the experiment, they would be transferred into a larger container with a light that made it easier to see any webs. The idea here was that web construction is actually a pretty good indicator of how the spider's nervous system is doing. It would also be interesting to see how the spiders decided how strong the web needed to be in the absence of gravity and wind. On the second week of the flight, Garriott connected Arabella's cage to the larger web chamber, and with a little encouragement, she moved into her new home. Her first web wasn't great, maybe a little spider space adaptation syndrome. But after the shaky start, she began to get the hang of it and made a reasonably good web. After a while, Arabella was returned to her cage and Anita was given a shot. Anita performed pretty much the same as Arabella. Unfortunately, both spiders died a few weeks into the mission, but don't feel too badly. In an effort to keep the spiders and the experiment going, Owen Garriott had started feeding both of them small slices of filet mignon. Not a bad life for a spider. One of the experiments that we've mentioned in passing but never really gotten into was the ergometer. Located on the main quote-unquote floor of Skylab, next to the crew quarters, this was essentially just an exercise bike, but with no wheel. It served two purposes. First, it helped to keep the crew fit and healthy. When you spend all day floating, your muscles and bones don't meet much resistance and they start to atrophy. NASA wanted to make sure the astronauts not only came back healthy, but also had as short of a recovery period as possible. So a good way to work out was essential. Secondly, by measuring how much energy the astronauts pumped into the system, and by using a special mask to measure their breath, scientists could measure their metabolism. I'm just speculating on this, but I bet the idea here was to see if the low-stress, floating lifestyle caused changes to metabolism over time, which could have important ramifications for even longer flights. The ergometer was designed to be used with an elaborate harness, which would prevent the crew member using it from just floating away, but this ended up being the latest on the list of stuff that seemed like it would work when we tried it on Earth. The Skylab 2 crew found that the harness was uncomfortable and forced them into a posture that wasn't exactly ideal for exercise. It also clamped onto their legs painfully hard. It was so bad that they found they couldn't go more than a few minutes on the bike, which alarmed the doctors responsible for the crew's health. If they couldn't work out, they might not be able to stay for the full planned duration. They tried adjusting it in a bunch of different configurations, but none of them really worked. Eventually, they tried just ditching the harness entirely, and that somehow worked great. To be honest, I'm not entirely sure how this was possibly ideal, but then again, I also haven't used an ergometer in zero gravity. Since there was no up or down, the crew was also able to get an upper body workout by pedaling with their hands. Neat. One of the more important and seemingly time-consuming experiments was the Apollo Telescope Mount. The ATM has played a prominent part of the crew's life during extravehicular activity, but what about when they're still inside? Well, it's a pretty prominent part of the crew's life then, too. As we discussed before, the ATM was a bunch of specialized instruments, cameras, and filters designed for studying the sun. It's easy to take our understanding of the sun for granted these days, with spacecraft like ACE, SDO, and SOHO, and any number of other heliophysics missions, but back in 1973, there was a lot we didn't know about the sun. I mean, that's probably also true today, but you know what I mean. I'm just gonna be straight with you and say that I don't know a ton about the nuts and bolts of actually operating the ATM, which is a shame because that's the sort of thing I really enjoy digging into. 
but I can tell you a little bit about how the astronauts interacted with it. When they weren't crawling around outside of it swapping film cassettes, the crew interacted with the ATM using a control panel inside the multiple docking adapter. The control panel was a pretty imposing looking apparatus. It looked sort of like a mix between a desk, some microscopes, an oscilloscope, and a big old pile of surplus Apollo control switches and dials. It actually came with a chair, but as soon as they tried to use it in zero gravity, the astronauts realized it was completely useless. Instead, they used their special shoes to hook into the small triangle grid floor under the desk. The hardest part of using the ATM was catching transient events in action. By monitoring active regions on the sun, it was possible to get a little warning, but you still had to react quickly. The Skylab 2 crew was able to train their instruments on a solar flare, but the Skylab 3 crew was the first to capture a coronal mass ejection. A coronal mass ejection, or CME, happens when the magnetic field of the sun gets all twisted up, which ties up a bunch of energy in the twisted magnetic lines. Eventually, the field snaps back to its default state and in the process launches an enormous amount of solar plasma out into the solar system at absurd speeds. I'm talking like 300 miles per second. We care about this because every once in a while, one of these giant balls of plasma gets launched at the Earth. When the ball hits the Earth, it distorts our magnetosphere and funnels charged particles down towards the North and South Pole. This creates nice-looking auroras, but can also mess with satellites or, when strong enough, even induce currents in electrical grids on Earth. A really bad CME has the potential to do a lot of damage, so it's important to understand how they work so that we can prepare for them if one is about to hit, and the Apollo telescope mount played a big role in that. What I like about the ATM is it's a good example of how humans and the loop can really be helpful. There's obviously a debate to be had about if the added expense of supporting a human crew is worth the extra flexibility and capability they provide, but there's no denying that the extra flexibility and capability is there. Rather than develop an automated way to identify a likely CME, line the instruments up with it properly, and start recording science data, Skylab relied on a person to make those judgment calls. Humans are really great at pattern recognition and inference that are obvious to us but difficult for a machine. It actually kind of reminds me of the early visions for spaceflight before everything became all electronic and uncrewed. We don't have any space telescopes for human crews today, but I like to think we will again in the future. One other set of experiments wasn't part of the official manifest, but that doesn't mean they were any less important. During his precious free time, science pilot Garriott filmed some basic science lessons with the hope that they would prove useful to Earth-bound science teachers. The lessons included zero-g, conservation laws in zero-g, gyroscopes in space, fluids in weightlessness, magnetism in space, and magnetic effects in space. The idea here was that teachers could use these relatively brief 12-minute video clips as building blocks in a broader lesson about science. What's sort of funny is I went looking for these clips, and instead of finding Owen Garriott demonstrating how magnets behave in zero gravity on Skylab, I found his son Richard Garriott doing similar experiments on the ISS 35 years later. So that's pretty cool. But that's enough science for now. There are still a few operational concerns to take care of. It turns out that I spoke too soon when I said that the first EVA took care of the last of the repairs, because I forgot there was one more EVA-based repair. 
Spread around the spacecraft were a number of rate gyros, which provided the ship's computer with information about how it was rotating. These rate gyros were not big fans of the high heat of the first 10 days of the mission, so it had been acting erratically ever since. With that in mind, Skylab 3 had launched with six new gyros in a package called the Rate Gyro Package, which the crew dubbed the Six Pack. The Six Pack was actually deployed inside the spacecraft in the MDA, but in order to bring them online, wiring on the outside needed to be rearranged. This EVA was originally going to be Jack Lausma and Alan Bean, but when Bean looked at the skill set of all three men, he realized that it would be best for the mission if he sent Lausma and Garriott out again on this particular EVA. Turning down an EVA is no small thing, but Bean prioritized the success of the mission. About halfway through the 59-day mission, Garriott and Lausma headed back outside. Lausma's main task was to handle the rewiring, while Garriott focused on ATM film swaps as well as some material science experiments. The pressure was really on Lausma, because if I understand correctly, if he was able to disconnect the old cabling, but unable to connect the new cabling, that would be game over for the station. It's not every day that the fate of a $10 billion space station comes down to your ability to not fumble some cables. The new cables were designed with EVA gloves in mind, with larger areas to grab onto. The old cables were not intended to be serviced, so instead of easier-to-handle cables, engineers cooked up some special pliers that would work with these specific cables. There were some tense moments as Lausma used plain old brute strength to accomplish his task, but in the end, he got it done. After four and a half hours outside, the two men came back inside, and EVA-2 was in the books. Alright, it's about halfway through the mission, the crew has taken the record for longest spaceflight from Skylab 2, and things seem to be going pretty well. Let's check in on their backlog. Actually, things are going pretty well here. Not only have the crew been catching up in their backlog, they eventually surpass it. They start bugging Houston for more stuff to do since they've already completed their scheduled objectives. It seems that their tight teamwork, heads-down grit, and systematic approach were making a real difference in their day-to-day -day work. But not everything aboard Skylab was work. Let's leave the crew to their backlog again and take a look at a few little bits of a typical slice of life that I picked out. First, let's talk about the shower. Yes, that's right. Skylab had a shower. With such long missions in mind, and perhaps with the distinct aroma of the Gemini 7 crew still searing their nostrils, NASA knew it would be important to give the crew a way to stay clean. Just like the 1G-style bottom floor of Skylab, the shower itself was a bit of an experiment. No one knew if it would be practical or not, and the only way to find out was to try. Enough water and water-heating energy was available for each crew member to take one shower every week or so. In order to shower, you would climb into a big flexible cylinder that was attached to the floor, pull it up around you and attach it to the ceiling. Once inside and sealed up, you could deploy warm water from a hose and rub yourself down. Once you were cleaned up, you could then use a vacuum to get rid of the water. Towel off, and you're done. Except in reality, the whole process took over an hour and wasn't really all that pleasant. On Earth, nothing beats a hot shower, but in space, the water just sort of gloms onto you like gel. It can be difficult to get it to move the way you want. And when you're done, it's a laborious and time-intensive process to vacuum up all the excess water. 
No one mentioned it, but I would also guess that it'd be unavoidable to accidentally choke on blobs of water or get them stuck in your eye or something. For that reason, over the entire 59-day mission, Bean took only two showers, Lausma one, and Garriott, who thought the whole thing was a giant waste of time, none. Instead, the crew simply cleaned up with damp and soapy washcloths. It was quick, easy, and apparently worked, since the crew both felt nice and clean and didn't stink. In fact, this continues to be the way astronauts stay fresh to this day. It's worth mentioning that a lot of the detail on the events of Skylab 3 are so well known today because both Alan Bean and Owen Garriott kept journals during the flight. Bean especially took long detailed notes that also included the state of mind of the crew. Since they were personal and stayed that way for decades, there are a lot of fascinating details. Bean's entire journal is available in the excellent book Homesteading Space, The Skylab Story, which I found particularly useful for filling in the gaps between dry mission report details. I bring this up because one detail in Bean's journal was something that I could really relate to. He kept rearranging his furniture. For whatever reason, I have this strange habit of moving most of my furniture around every few months to new configurations, so I thought it was interesting that Bean did something similar in his small personal quarters. He talks about flipping the sleeping bag so his head was where his feet would go, cutting holes in the bag so his feet wouldn't get too hot, patching the hole back up when he got cold, and even stealing a power cable from the spider experiment. I found those details to be interesting because usually the events that get recorded in spaceflight are EVA durations, number of experiments performed, apogee, perigee, covariance, stuff like that. It's cool to get a better sense of what it's like to actually live in space. The crew also had a fair amount of fun. Whether it was doing flips around the locker ring of the orbital workshop, trying to jump down the center of the entire stack without touching anything, or just looking out the window, there was a lot of unique entertainment. They also had some somewhat elaborate pranks. When leaving, they took a Skylab 4 uniform, put some bags where the hands, feet, and head go, and then placed it on the ergometer as if a mysterious stowaway was on board when the next crew arrived. And continuing on the stowaway theme, the crew, two Capcoms, and Owen's wife Helen cooked up a really impressive prank. At one point in the flight, mission controllers heard a woman's voice calling down from Skylab and carrying on a conversation with the Capcom on duty, calling him by name. She identified herself as Helen Garriott and seemed to actually be up to date on recent news, mentioning the wildfires visible from orbit. Mission control was, of course, baffled. This was clearly a goof, but how? All involved kept the mechanics of the prank a secret for 25 years, but I can tell you how they did it or at least homesteading space the Skylab story can. The short version is that they picked two vague natural disasters that were likely to occur during their flight, wildfires and hurricanes. Then they picked two Capcoms who were in on the joke, Bob Crippen and Carl Hennies. Helen then recorded four scripts, Crippen Wildfires, Crippen Hurricanes, Hennies Wildfires, Hennies Hurricanes. Both Capcoms knew the script and when Helen's pauses for responses would be. When the time came, Owen Garriott said a coded phrase to Capcom Bob Crippen, indicating that the pre-recorded conversation would be playing down soon. Mission Control never did figure out how they did it. Well, the mission is winding down, so I suppose we better check in on our trio again. Not only have they caught up, but they have significantly exceeded their original goals. 
In the end, the Skylab 3 crew completed 150% of their objectives. Not bad when you consider their ramp-up period at the start of the mission. In fact, it seems that they were eager for more since they requested a week-long extension from Houston. The request was considered but eventually declined since all of the objectives were complete, they were out of film, and they would have had to dig into Skylab 4's supplies. Though even with the mission ending on time, the Skylab 4 crew did report a suspiciously low number of cookies on board. So with the end of the mission in sight, the only major task left was a third EVA. There were no big repairs to perform this time, just a routine run up the ATM to grab some film to bring home, and a number of other small tasks. This time, it would be Bean and Garriott popping outside. By taking Bean's spot on the second EVA, Lucky Duck Garriott managed to go out on all three EVAs. Alan Bean's perspective on this type of spacewalk was interesting since we're all well familiar with his two previous EVAs in a dusty little place called the Sea of Storms. He said that an orbital EVA was an entirely different experience than walking on the moon, and that makes sense to me. On the moon, everything is weird, but at the same time, it's pretty familiar. Yeah, you're wearing a big bulky suit, the sky is black, and everything falls slower, but it's not that different from just walking around normally. In orbit, you just have this door into the void, and depending on how you've oriented yourself, you could consider yourself to be sticking your head out of a ceiling, opening a door on the wall, or even descending down into an infinitely deep trap door. The view is also a totally different experience in orbit. In fact, Bean got a rare treat. At one point in the EVA, as he was working on some minor fix, Mission Control asked him to sit tight for the orbital night as they evaluated the repair. He had nothing to do but look around and enjoy the scenery for like a half an hour. Few have had that privilege. All that was left after EVA 3 was to get ready to come home. The mission had been a wild success up to this point, but the crew would still have to contend with the crippled attitude control system on the service module. In the end, there wasn't much to worry about. I imagine that the symmetrical failures of Quad B and D helped, but when the time came to back away and re-enter, there were no problems. After 59 days, 11 hours, and 9 minutes in space, the crew of Skylab 3 splashed down in the Pacific Ocean, about 200 miles southwest of San Diego. Of course, it landed in the Stable 2 orientation with the pointy end down, but once the airbags inflated, it righted itself. Once safely on board the USS New Orleans, the big question was how the crew was feeling. They had more than doubled the record for spaceflight duration, but had the stay taken its toll? It had, but it was manageable. Bean found himself wanting to lie down a lot. Garriott found that he was unable to walk across his bedroom in the dark since his sense of balance was so wonked out. Lausma tried to transfer something from one hand to the other by gently floating it over, only to relearn an old lesson at 9.8 meters per second per second as it smashed to the ground. Lausma also captured the feeling that accompanied their lower blood volume by saying, I didn't feel bad, just lazy. Just like their initial adaptation to space, their re-adaptation to Earth took a few days to be comfortable and a few weeks to really fully be up to speed. Maybe this long-duration thing was doable after all. As we turn our attention away from the successful flight of Skylab 3, NASA turns its attention to the upcoming flight of Skylab 4. 
and since clearly the previous crew had not been given enough work to do, scientists and flight planners recalibrated and created a schedule over-brimming with objectives. Skylab 3's sprint-like pace was now the new normal. Let's find out if the final Skylab crew can keep up. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. <laughs>